Brothers and sisters, let's return in our Bibles one last time in 2023 to the book of Genesis, the third chapter. Genesis chapter 3, if you're visiting with us, we've been considering in recent weeks our Lord's words to our first parents soon after they first rebelled against him. Their words of judgment, we come to the final word spoken to Adam, word about his mortality, newfound mortality. I'll be reading from verse 17 to verse 19, Genesis chapter 3. This is the word of God. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, And have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken... For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Amen. Let's seek the Lord's blessing, his word preached. Our Father, we submit ourselves again, not only to you, but to your word. We want it to be further shaping us this hour. We pray, our Father, that we might live as those who have understood all we've been saved from by the life of Christ himself. We thank you for him. We ask that you'd allow us to hear his voice. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Well, God had said, on the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. And as we've seen in this account, the day has come, the forbidden fruit has been eaten, God has entered the garden to pronounce the sentence that's deserved, but thus far there's been no talk yet of death. As a matter of fact, everything about the words that God speaks to Eve, and then as he begins speaking to Adam, presume that Well, life will go on. Parenting will be hard, but life goes on. Marriage will be hard, but life goes on. Work will be hard. But apparently life goes on. Some have supposed that there was actually a change of mind on God's part, that he'd said on the day they eat of it, you will die, They deserved to drop dead the moment they ate from the forbidden fruit, but God in mercy delayed their judgment. I think a better understanding, and we've already seen this, is that death in its worst form indeed was instantaneously experienced. 
They became spiritually dead when they ate. They were unable even to respond to God with genuine remorse for sin because they're spiritually dead the very day they ate. And even in physical terms, it'd be right for us to think of Adam and Eve like cut flowers the moment they ate of the forbidden fruit. They're dying sinners now. Even in their bodies, mortality has entered into them. So we are coming now to the final word of judgment by God to Adam, and we'll see finally a statement about his mortality. Adam was created with the capacity to live forever. But instead, he will die. So much that could be said about the subject of human mortality. But today, I want to take our cues from how death is introduced to us in Genesis chapter 3. There's three things that we see about death as it's spoken of really in detail for the first time in Scripture. We're going to be looking at death in terms of Genesis 3, but we'll also be considering it in the light of the rest of Scripture to some measure and especially in light of the gospel. I'll just say that if any of you have a certain shrinking back from the subject that God's word brings us to this morning, I fully understand. Death is not a pleasant subject indeed. It's one that we don't naturally take seriously enough. That's one reason for us to consider it. But brothers and sisters, as we've seen already, even here in the words of judgment, we're going to see pointers to God's mercy. So take heart. And here's the first thing we see as we're introduced to death in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced to death as the great undoer of God's creation. So it's very interesting, the word death doesn't actually even appear in verses 17 and 19, but that's clearly what God is referring to in verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Do you remember how we asked ourselves we wondered to ourselves back in chapter 2 when God had first said to Adam and Eve, if you eat, you will die. We asked, how would they even know what death was? Something so foreign to their experience. Well, God is spelling out what death is now in chapter 3, even in vivid terms. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. I want you to see how he's depicting death here. It's a kind of unmaking of Adam. You could call it a decreating of him. Kids, do you remember what we learned about God's special work of creating Adam? Children, remember that uh, all the other things that God made, he just made by speaking, in fact, by commanding things into existence. But he made man in a very special way. He made Adam by hand. He formed Adam from the dust of the ground. Children, remember this? Tender, loving care is being shown there. He, he formed Adam from the dust of the ground, 
And then face to face, he breathed into Adam the breath of life. So in Genesis 2, there was this supernatural moment in the midst of many supernatural moments, to be sure, that was set apart as God took dust of the ground and transformed it into flesh and blood, bone and skin, heart and lungs, eyes and ears, hands and feet. And we knew then that he was creating his greatest masterpiece. This was the only creature made in his image. It was, of all the glories of creation, the most glorious thing. And now he's telling Adam, death will undo what I've done in making you. Out of it you were taken, creation, and to dust you shall return. In context, it really is that death is being spoken of. It's being introduced to Adam as a transformation from flesh to dust. It's creation in reverse. The soul of man will be drawn out of his body. The body of man will be dissolved back into the ground. It will be an undoing of the miracle of Adam's formation. That's the way God speaks of death to Adam. Now, it seems like a contradiction in verse 19. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. How could Adam return to dust if he already was dust? And you understand. I think you understand what God is doing in the first part of that statement is referring to the fact, Adam, you're not an angel. I made you, your flesh, your bones, out of the elements of the earth. If he were speaking very literally, he would have said, you are carbon and nitrogen, calcium and oxygen and so on and so on. You are these elements, Adam. The time is coming when your glorious frame will lose its current composition and you will dissolve back into those basic elements, the, the ones you share with the rest of the natural world. So I'm wanting you to see, brothers and sisters, that from a Genesis perspective, death is the destruction of God's greatest invention, life. It's his masterpiece of man that's being unmade. Man, male and female, in his image it's being unmade, but it's also, in a lesser degree, it's all living creatures, all that has the breath of life, as we were told of them in the beginning of the book of Genesis and I'm urging us to think of death in what I'll call a God-centered way rather than a self-oriented way. Death is, as it's, as it's presented to Adam, a tragedy, not first and foremost because of what it does to you. 
It's because of what it does to you as God's great creation, his masterpiece, his special work. I'll just pause here to say in light of the way death is first presented in God's word, it's so distressing to me that there remains debate among even good scholars over the question of whether death existed in the world before the fall. I said to you last week, there are some even conservative Bible scholars who want to take the view that thorns and thistles were just part of God's original design, that there were things that had potential harm in them, inherent to them, that God made even before the world was fallen. And it's also, even more seriously, come to be a very common view among modern scholars that, well, that mortality, both men and angel, pardon me, men and animals, was part of the way God originally designed the world. And of course, that seems to help some reconcile the biblical teaching with the natural world and the phenomenon that, yes, indeed, everywhere we look, we can see life being sustained by death in the world in which we currently live. But doesn't that miss the way God is depicting to Adam the character of his coming death? It's a kind of creation in reverse. God didn't create the world with self-destructive properties in it to self-destruct in certain ways. He fashioned Adam's body from the dust with the intention. No, not that it would just time out and go back to the ground. Death in Genesis 3 is part of God's curse. It's not original to creation. And that's just in a reading of Genesis 3. The New Testament makes this crystal clear. Places like Romans 5 and Romans 6 and 1 Corinthians 15 where we read things like, by a man came death. But brothers and sisters, this is why we insist rightly as Christians that death isn't a natural thing. God made Adam from the dust of the ground, but death will unmake him. It will return him to the dust. How are we to respond to that, as grim as it is? How are we to respond to death as the undoer of God's creation? I want to commend to you both humility and hope in response to this first observation why would I say humility? Well, just in light of the fact that the scripture takes this language that's first given to us in Genesis 3 where God says to Adam, you are dust. And it becomes a refrain. You know this, right? In the scripture, that becomes a refrain. That's an important part of human, fallen human beings, self-identity. Just a few chapters later in Genesis, Abraham will say to the Lord, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord I who am but dust and ashes. What is Abraham saying? He's recognizing that he's a mere creature, and, if, and not only that, 
He's a creature that's destined for dust. Because of sin, he's a creature that's already dissolving, we could say. Matthew Henry has a wonderful word picture for us. He compares all of us as human beings, even in our most glorious moments of life, to so many dust clouds. He says, dust may be raised for a time into a little cloud and may seem considerable while it's held up by the wind that raised it. But when the force of that is spent, it falls again returns to the earth out of which it was raised. Such a thing is man. A great man is but a great mass of dust. Must return to his earth. It's right to be humbled by what we are told, listening in on God's words to Adam, because being so humbled is what's prior to being so desperately dependent on the God who can raise dust from the ground, sustain us though we are dust. But I said it's not just humility that's the right response, it's also hope. And I want to say, particularly to a certain group of you in this room, you are one of many people in this room who've watched someone that you love succumb to death. Perhaps you've watched the wasting effects of a disease. Perhaps you've felt with them the helplessness of a medical community to ward off the approach of death. Perhaps you've even been present when that person that you love finally lost their life. I'd say to you, the last thing you need to be told is that this is just the way God made the world to be. That's the last thing you need to be told. You don't need to be told it's just part of the circle of life. You know what you saw. It wasn't pretty. There's no comfort in denying it. Here's what you need. Here's what you need. You need to hear about the reality that those who die in the Lord have a future in which death itself will be undone. I've been saying to you that death is the undoing of creation, but if this is true, then resurrection is the redoing of what death undoes. Think of resurrection, that which is at the center of our hope as Christians, as one day putting death into reverse. Dust being reassembled, gathered, and in tender, loving care. Christ, the same Christ who first formed Adam from the dust of the ground, fashioning each of those who died in union with him. That's precisely what the gospel tells us is God's remedy for the curse of death. Paul speaks of it in 1 Corinthians 15, when the perishable 
puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. As you think about the coming resurrection, brothers and sisters, as, you, as it boggles your mind, as you think of the many thousands, millions, billions of humans who will be refashioned from the dust of the earth, as that boggles your mind, as you especially think about those who died in Christ and their bodies in the grave being still united to Christ, wait for that day. What's the best you can do in thinking of a paradigm for that? Well, it's Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. It's a reversal of Genesis 3, the words, to dust you shall return. It's a reversal of that, and it's a return to Genesis 2. Think of the one that you love, who's lost life, as being the one that Christ one day fashioned into that self-same body that you've known and loved, and will once again impart that spirit that you have known and loved into reunion with that body. That's your resurrection religion, brothers and sisters. It is death itself being undone. Resurrection is death in reverse. Praise be to God. We're introduced to death as the great undoer of God's creation. That's first. Here's what else we can see about death. In Genesis 3, we're introduced to death as the great disabler of man's dominion. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. That's the language of the old Book of Common Prayer, funeral liturgy, and we know those words so well, but it's easy to lose the context in which they're first given and what God has been saying to Adam as he utters those words. God's been speaking, you'll recall, to Adam in light of the calling that he had given to Adam in a special way to subdue the earth, to work the ground, to keep the ground. God had, we've already seen this, put Adam on notice that that work of keeping the ground will be arduous now. The ground's going to fight back at him. Thorns and thistles will rise up. That's what we've just come from considering in this passage. And now the effect of what God says to Adam is this, Adam, in this struggle between you and the ground, as you seek to fulfill your calling to have dominion over the earth, you will indeed draw forth from the ground against all its resistance your food. You will take dominion in real measure. But Adam... One day, the ground will win. The ground will take you back into itself. Do you see in the context the significance of Adam hearing this? Listen, as I read the text again, listen to the struggle. My emphasis between Adam and the ground. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it. That's the ground. 
all the days of your life, thorn and thorns and thistles, it, the ground, will bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field, that is, the ground, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. What I want you to see is that death is being presented as an obstacle to Adam being all that God had originally intended him to be. It's the greatest obstacle. Thorns and thistles, they're hindrances to his work in the world, but nothing, nothing like death, which is the ultimate hindrance to Adam. He seeks to rule the earth. Again, I'm, I'm asking us to think of death in something other than the way the world inevitably thinks of it, death as purely self-absorbed and selfish ways. That's what a worldly view of death is. It, it's that which stands in the way of our quest for pleasure and fulfillment in this life. It's what deprives us of our dreams and our ambitions. The tragedy of death, as the world thinks of it, is that we probably won't finish our bucket list. So much we could have savored of pleasure and the rest, except for death. Here's a more biblical view of the tragedy of death. It's what keeps all of us from ultimately obtaining all that God intended for us as those made in his image. Adam's calling isn't Suspended, he's still called to take dominion, to rule the earth, but death will mean he'll be cut short in that. So, kids, you can think just in terms of Adam's experience. God made Adam strong and able to go out and, 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 and muscle the fields to plow and to plant and to harvest. He gave him a body strong to do that. But now that strength is going to lessen more and more. You kids see it some days in your dad. He says, I'm just not the man I used to be. He's physically not all that he would want to be, that he once was and can't, as a result, do things that God has already, uh, otherwise entrusted to him to do. It's not just physical, it's our minds as well, isn't it? I suppose that there came a time, although Adam lived to be a long, an old man, when he couldn't remember things <laughs> like he used to. When his mind got confused and clouded, and you've got to have clear thinking. You need to have a mind to fulfill this mandate, to have dominion of the earth. And, and this too would eventually flee from Adam. We see even in our day some of our most powerful men, uh, politicians, and we see that they're beginning to succumb, even in places of power, to the encroaching of death. And we realize they they're not able to do it as they once were. Why is death such a calamity? God-centered response 
is that there's so much to be done in building this kingdom of God and we're all dying. Our minds, our bodies become our enemies in our service to the Lord. You ever thought about what mankind could have accomplished by now, certainly, in fulfilling that wonderful mandate to take dominion in the earth if sin and death had never come to hobble mankind? Can you, can you imagine? No one ever has to, to lose the benefit of years of experience, of study, and the like. We have a, we, just thinking in terms of a civilization as a whole, we, we are crippled by the fact that every member of it just gets to the point where they're finally learning a thing or two, learning from their mistakes, learning from all their years of experience, and then we have to do without them. That they too will pass from this life. I think as a pastor, I finally, maybe just now beginning to learn from a few mistakes. Learn from a little bit of experience. Parents, you know this, get those kids finally all out of the house and think, well, now I have at least the experience to know what to do, but I have no more strength, no more energy to do it. You have a sense, brothers and sisters, of your calling in this world. You've embraced the reason that you're here as image bearers of God, then this can become your greatest regret about the approach of death. It's that there's so much yet to be done in service to the Lord. I'm seeing that as the context in particular of how God speaks to Adam first about death. How do we respond to this? Recognizing in death the the disabler of man's dominion. Well, diligence first, then confidence. Brothers and sisters, when I speak of diligence, I'm talking about the fact that, hey, if indeed the call of God to take dominion is still upon us, God in grace and mercy hasn't lifted that from us, but we have, as Psalm 90 said, only 70 years, or if by reason of strength 80, then Oh, how much more must we consider how not to waste the days we have? That's the point of Psalm 90. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Another way of saying that is the way John Piper said it. Don't waste your life. Teach us, O oh Lord, to number our days. You've not numbered your days, brothers and sisters, if you've not faced squarely how few there are of them and how fast they'll be over. You haven't numbered your days unless you've been realistic about that, how few there are and how fast they fly away. Indeed, as Moses says, they are soon gone. And we fly away. We number our days when we recognize death is coming, but God has called me 
And so I'll make as much of the time that I have. Diligence in light of the disabling effect of death on our calling, but also confidence. Brothers and sisters, and I'll say it this way, confidence that as you labor under the curse even, with days that are fleeting, all your labors count towards a life that's coming. This is a familiar theme you've heard from this pulpit more than once. God's telling Adam, by virtue of his fight with thorns and thistles, he will be able to eat of the plants of the field, sweat of his brow, he will be able to put bread on his table. Is that the sum total of the worth of our labor in this life? It'll enable us to survive for a few years. Well, folks, not according to the rest of the Bible. We saw this last time. Our labors do more than just sustain our lives. For a little while, God privileges us with being his partners in the advancing of his kingdom. And here's the point I would make today. You and your accomplishments may be gone without a trace a hundred years from now, but God keeps a record of all you do. He reserves a reward for his faithful servants the last day, and this, on top of all the rest, your labors in this life will bear fruit in the life to come. There may be mystery to this, but listen to how Revelation 21, a passage I've preached a whole sermon from in the past, speaks of this. Speaking of heaven, we're told, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Dutch reformer Abraham Kuyper tells us what Revelation 21 is talking about. He says, if an endless field of human knowledge and of human ability is now being formed by all that takes place in order to make the visible world and material nature subject to us, that's the dominion we're called to. And if we know that this dominion of ours over nature will be complete in eternity, we may conclude that the knowledge and dominion we've gained over nature here can and will be of continued significance even in the kingdom of glory. That's what it means. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. That is the new city. Brothers and sisters, as devastating as death is to our living up to the calling of Adam, it doesn't rob us of the ability to lay up treasure in heaven. Here and now, in our daily callings. And that's a source of immense confidence in our everyday faithfulness. So, death. Introduced to us as the undoer of God's creation. As the disabler of man's dominion. One other way it's introduced to us in Genesis 3. We're introduced to death as the end 
of man's suffering under the curse. Here I'm pointing out that while God is speaking of Adam's life as one of pain and hardship under the curse, we've seen that. Yet, it's clear in how he speaks to Adam that pain and that hardship will end in death. And my point now is there is not only judgment in that, there's also mercy. Uh, in my translation, the word is till, T-I-L-L, till you return to the ground. Some of you have it until, and I didn't know until this week, that those are not the same word, and one is not just an abbreviation of the other. I didn't know. Who would have, who would have known? They both mean essentially the same thing. The pain and the hardship, the sweat, the blood, the tears. Adam, that's going to be your lot in life till you return to the ground. Yes, brothers and sisters, there is in that returning to the ground a kind of final judgment of God in temporal terms. Yes, that's the right way to look at death. It's not the only way, as we'll see. But it is a kind of capstone, this temporal curse. It's a kind of finale. And especially as that felt by those who have no resurrection religion. Life stinks, and then you die. You have a hard life, and then for many, thing, many people, the hardest thing they go through is death. You have non-Christian friends who essentially, if they thought about it, have that view. Life followed by death. Life is hard, death comes fast, and death is the worst of all. You can see why unbelievers respond to that in one of two ways. They either practice rather sophisticated forms of denial. Denial that death is really coming. Or they sink into despair. As many a thoughtful pagan has even been driven mad despair. Here, as I preach to the saints of God, I want you to see that there is actually mercy in the curse for us. We talk about death at times being a merciful death, and we mean by that that someone can know a certain amount of suffering that comes to an end. When they die, and God is merciful in bringing their suffering to an end. But, brothers and sisters, there's a sense in which all of our deaths as the children of God are merciful deaths. Church father Theodoret put it this way through that very punishment of death, God also demonstrated his love for us. He ordered things in such a way that the punishment might in itself serve the goal of salvation. For death brings about separation from this life and brings evil works 
to an end. It sets us free from labor and sweat and pain and ends the suffering of the body. Thus the judge mixes his love for us with punishment. He's speaking of what the New Testament would eventually go on to refer to as death, that though originally delivered, originally pronounced as a curse, loses its sting, as the apostle says. I've quoted the larger catechism in more than one funeral, but it asks this question that is so poignant to those who are grieving at the side of a grave. Death being the wages of sin, why are not the righteous delivered from death, seeing all their sins are forgiven in Christ. Do you hear the logic of it? If death is judgment and Christ has borne all of our judgment in our place, why must the righteous die? Listen for the answer of our Father. The righteous shall be delivered from death itself at the last day. And even in death are delivered from the sting and curse of it so that although they die, yet it is out of God's love to free them perfectly from sin and misery to make them capable of further communion with Christ in glory, which they then enter upon. Fathers are recognizing that whatever whatever the inglorious elements of the dying process. The moment of death is the moment God calls us to himself. It's the moment we're freed from sin and all its misery. It's the moment we enter into the presence of Christ's glory, all of which makes death a rather toothless foe. So this is a word not just for those who have been sad witnesses of death or those who want to ignore the reality of death. It's a word for those who might be fearful of death. Consider what death brings for the child of God you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and he has thereby united you with himself in his death and in his resurrection, then remember that little word, till. Death brings an end to all sin and suffering for you. I don't know about you guys, but I... I have lived long enough to look forward to not death itself. I have no death wish. Not the hardship of dying. I'm very realistic about that. I'm looking forward to finishing the fight. Paul says it to Timothy. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Do you hear it? 
hear the sense of relief in his voice. It's been a fierce fight. Timothy, it's almost over. It's been a tough race. Timothy, I can see the finish line. Death had become a finish line for Paul. It had become the end of his suffering. It had become the start of his reward. That, my friend, my Christian brothers and sisters, that's the final piece of a Christian view of death. It's the end of all this that we've been studying the last few weeks, of what it means to live under the curse. Death brings the end of that for us. The end of all our groaning and the pains of childbirth, ladies, and all that parenting brings, parents. It's the end of all our strife with one another in our marriages, in our homes, in our churches. It's the end of all of that. The end of the thorn, the thistles we are fighting against every day. The people of God, it's a doorway into a place utterly free of all God's judgment. I've quoted Adoniram Judson before, but it's been a few weeks, so I'm quoting him again. Could not say it better. Missionary to Burma. Adoniram Judson says, I am not tired of my work. Neither am I tired of the world. Yet, when Christ calls me home, I shall go with the gladness of a schoolboy bounding away from school. We've had some glad schoolboys in my house recently. Bounding away from school. Not a lot of wistful looking back at vibrations and controls class or organic chemistry too, they were brutal. Worked, fought, and will do it as long as God calls us. And when he says, you can stop now, I'm calling you home. That's the schoolboy skipping from school. Brothers and sisters, God, by taking human flesh, submitting himself to death itself, has turned death inside out for you, for me. Death is the moment. Death is the moment of deliverance from all life under the curse. Praise be to God. Amen. Let's pray together. Give us grace, O oh Lord, for the fight. Grant us, O oh Lord, success in our labors under the curse. Take note of all faithfulness by your Spirit's work and your grace in our lives. We claim the reward you've promised for it. We ask for the privilege of taking what we've learned and what we've done 
into the new heavens and the new earth that are yet to come. We pray that you will give us encouragement in all of our labor. May we be, though fallen sinners, though but dust, in the process of returning to dust, may we be by your grace and your power that is glorified in weakness, mighty men and women in your army, advancing this kingdom. You've made us partners with your son in advancing. But our Lord, we pray that you keep us faithful and diligent. You will also make us fearless for that moment when it comes of your saying, it is enough. Your work is finished. We ask you, O Lord, for grace to live well, grace to die well, those who believe in your Son. We pray it in his name. Amen.